Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Have you ever read the Bible and thought to yourself, I've read that story a thousand times and, and I've never seen it like that. Have you ever done, been there and done that? Well, that's, that's where I am this morning. I've read this story a thousand times. I was prepared months ago to preach it in a certain way, in a certain fashion, and I believe there's still some truth there, but... As I've sat with this word this week, I believe God has changed the way that I see it. So, let me do a little recap, okay? Here's the recap. Just of the last few sermons in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 is about the manna from heaven. December 4th, Pastor Ken preached a great sermon about how the manna that fell from heaven was a picture of who? Oh my good gravy. Church family, are y'all awake right now? Y'all stay up a little too late last night? Let's try that again. That the manna that came down from heaven that fed the Israelites in the wilderness was a picture of who? Jesus, the bread of life, right? It's a picture of him. And it's a picture of Christ and his incarnation. The manna every morning fell down from heaven and laid on the earth, and Christ descended from heaven to earth to be the bread of life. Now, Exodus chapter 17, 1 through 7, there was a problem, no water. And we saw how God said to Moses, take the elders, go with you, go to the rock that I'm going to show you. I'm going to stand on the rock there at Horeb. And as I stand there on the rock, Moses, you're going to take the staff of God in your hand, which represents the judgment of God, and you're going to strike the rock that I'm standing on, and water will flow forth from it. Water will flow forth from it. And we learn of this living water, and it satisfied the thirsts of God's people, and it's a picture of Christ's crucifixion. You say, Ryan, that sounds far-fetched. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says the rock that the people drank from, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. It's a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. That there in chapter 17, verse 1 and following, the people were thirsty and they began to quarrel with Moses and they began to grumble against the Lord. And as they did that, God could have easily struck them down with the rod of his anger and the rod of his judgment and the rod of his wrath. But instead, he says, I'm going to stand before you on the rock and you're going to strike the rock and the rock's going to pour out water in the wilderness. It's a picture of the crucifixion of Christ, that Jesus was the substitute crucified in our place. 
And he was struck with the rod of God's judgment that we rightfully deserved, and living water flowed from that smitten rock. And so the water symbolized something, and Jesus says it in John chapter 7, where he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it goes on in verse 38, it says this, he said about the Holy Spirit. And so it's pointing forward to the, the Holy Spirit, the spring of water that would be put inside the hearts of those who thirst and come to Jesus, which the Holy Spirit would forever satisfy the longing of a thirsty soul. And so in these passages, we see the incarnation, we see the crucifixion, and we see the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. The life of every believer. Now, in the second half of chapter 17, what we see is that the battle begins. Okay, so follow the kind of the logic or the flow of thought. Incarnation, crucifixion, filling of the Holy Spirit, and then there's a battle. All right, so let's read verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Amalek, who in the world is Amalek? Can anybody tell me who Amalek is? He's a descendant of Esau. Esau's descendants. Now, if you'll go back and you remember who Esau was, Esau was uh, 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 the, one of the brothers. Man, this is one of those places in my mind where I've got to go back through the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. His brother of Jacob, and Jacob tricked Esau... And Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You remember that? And so this is, these are Esau's descendants. Now, let me just give you another picture, okay? On the screen or in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19, kind of give us a little bit more of background about why in the world is Amalek fighting uh, the people of Israel. Now, there are a lot of thoughts of why Amalek is fighting the people of Israel, but Deuteronomy chapter 25 gives us an idea. Now, one of the thoughts behind that is, well, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. So what did they have? They had lots of wealth at this point in time. Well, that's one idea. Uh, one idea, one picture is that back in chapter 15, they uh, spent a lot of time at the, the, um, this place called Elim, which had 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Water in the desert was a, a huge source of wealth and life. And now they have a rock that flows water for them, and so Amalek might be coming after them for water. Okay, But Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19 says it like this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So here's the picture that Israel, millions of people streaming out of Egypt, it does not take them uh, a short time to cross or go through a place. And so as they're going through this wilderness, he cuts off their tail. In other words, he cuts them off, the slow, the weak, the children, the, the whatever it might be, the aged, he cuts them off and he begins to uh, fight against them. And then it goes on, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget 
Now, this was a big deal to God. He says, he says, when you finally get into the land, you find the descendants of Amalek and you destroy them. You blot them out from heaven because of what they did done to me in the wilderness. Now, so we see Amalek comes to fight. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, question for you. Choose men to fight. Is that a new theme in the book of Exodus? Has God ever said to the people of Israel in Exodus, fight? No. In fact, every time he's said, stand back and watch me fight. All right? If you go back to chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And in chapter 425, when the Egyptians are about to be smothered in the Red Sea, this is what they say. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them. Up to this point, God has fought their battles. He fought every battle they needed that needed to be fought there in Egypt. And now he is saying, choose men and fight. Choose men and fight. And then he says this, verse 9 continues on, and it says, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua, you choose men to fight, I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to overlook the valley, and I'm going to be there with the staff of God in my hand. Now, do you remember what the staff represents? Divine power and divine judgment. Divine power and divine judgment. We see God's divine power be expressed through the staff all through the book of Exodus and then divine judgment, okay? So, now verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11, whenever Moses held his hand, held up his hand, Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Can you imagine that being your job, that being your job, that you're standing on top of this mountain or hill overlooking the valley and your people, your friends, your family, they're sitting in the valley fighting. And when your hand with God's symbol of divine power and judgment are held up in the air, that Israel is prevailing, Israel's winning, yay team, when your hand goes down, you begin to lose the battle and people you love start dying. Can you imagine the pressure that Moses is under in that moment? Now, I do believe, and this is not my point today, but I do believe that there is something in there for the church that this is the serious nature of why God's people exists. Because there is a gospel that we must hold high in the middle of a dying people, and if we do not hold it high, people are doomed to death. It's not my point right now. Now, this symbol of God's divine power and judgment, this is not the first time that Moses is instructed to hold it up. In verse or chapter 14, verse 16, they come to the edge of the Red Sea. God says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through. So this, we see this before. Moses, this is your job. Hold it up, and when you do, I will be victorious. And when you don't, 
I will let Israel be overwhelmed. What an amount of pressure that he's bearing. But this is what we see. What a beautiful picture. Let's look at verse 12. Moses' hands grew weary. Could you only imagine? Have you ever just tried simply holding your hands up for long? There are some of us who we worship with hands raised. And after a while, i got to switch arms. Because that one's tired, right? i got two hands for a purpose. I can worship with this hand, I can worship with this hand, right? Okay, some of you aren't that Pentecostal, I'm sorry. We'll work on it. So, uh, just imagine. Now, what happened? His hands grew weary. So, what did they do? They took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. What a picture of what Christian fellowship is supposed to be like. That when your hands get weary, don't worry, there are two on either side of you holding up your arms. Right? And oftentimes we talk about how we do that in prayer, etc. But Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What a picture of the unity of God's church. This is not the picture that we see in verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 to 7, we see quarreling and fighting, and now we see a common goal and unity around that common goal, and that is serious business. He sits them on the stone. Now, I'm a picture guy who all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, is the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus, Jesus, the prophets even say that he is a stone cut out without human hands. He is the stone, and they sit him on the stone. Sit him on the stone, and they, Aaron and Hur, hold up his hands. Now, the lifting of the staff teaches us of the source of the victory. Question, was the victory ultimately given to Moses who held up his hands? Or was the glory of the victory ultimately given to the one he held up his hands to? That one. Right? It's like Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And so this is a a picture of I'm lifting up my hands and my eyes to the one from where my help comes from. My help is not from me. My help is not in a staff, but my hand is holding up a staff which is symbolic of the one who has all divine power and divine judgment in his hands. And so as we talk about this story, there are two pictures, I believe, that are portrayed for us that are helpful for us as New Testament Christians, okay? And so here are the two pictures that I want you and I to consider today, okay? So the first picture is, is, is individual, the second one is corporate. The first picture is internal, the second one is external, the first picture is spiritual, and the second picture is practical, okay? So, two pictures, one internal, one individual, and one spiritual in nature, and the second one is more external and practical in nature, okay? 
So here's the two pictures. The first battle is the inner battle between two natures. The inner battle between two natures. Now, follow my logic for a second. A.W. Pink, A.W. Pink, great commentator, says that if we follow the logic of Exodus chapter 16, which is his Jesus's, a picture of his divine incarnation, where he becomes the bread of life, and Jesus says in John chapter 6, whoever eats of the, me the bread of life will never hunger and never thirst again. So he references, he said, it's not Moses who gave your people manna from heaven, it's my Father who gave you manna from heaven, and I am the bread of life. So, Exodus chapter 16, the incarnation, Exodus chapter 17, the crucifixion, and Exodus chapter 17, the filling of the Holy Spirit. What happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? And I don't want to, I'm not talking about this mystical idea, but what we see when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we are born again as a new person with a new nature in Christ Jesus. Are you with me, church family? So, now, inside of me, inside of me, I have two natures. I have my old, sinful, fleshly nature, and I have this new nature that God has given me in Christ. So, we see Exodus 16, incarnation, 17, crucifixion, and 17, the filling of the Spirit, and then the battle begins. Remember who Amalek was. He was the descendant of Esau, and in the Scriptures, Esau was a representation of the flesh. And when I say flesh, I don't mean the body of a person, but I mean the part of a person, whether that person is saved or unsaved, the part of that person that continues to live according to sinful desires, earthly passions, unhealthy cravings. That part of a person that has not yet been transformed by the redeeming, powerful work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I mean. The part of a person that has not been redeemed, nor is submitted to his lordship. That is the flesh of a man. That is the flesh of every person. And Esau is a picture of the corruption of the flesh and the grave consequence of giving into it. Do you remember? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He was living in that moment according to what? The Spirit of God? No, according to his flesh, according to the desire and cravings of his flesh. He was so hungry. Have your children ever said this? Mom, I'm so hungry, I'm starving. I'm dying here. Uh-huh. We know little of starving or dying, and I believe that Esau was probably in that irrational state. He made an unwise decision because of his flesh. Now, this singular action that he made of selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob, that soup smells really good. Uh, it smells so good, and I'm so hungry right now that I'll give you my birthright for that. Oh, man, how cheaply was the birthright of God sold in that moment, huh? And it was a singular action with lasting consequence. Sometimes we underestimate how... How heavy, how great, how burdensome our consequences are from our sin. But this consequence was a consequence which could not be undone. Hebrews chapter 12 goes on to say about Esau that Esau sought an opportunity for repentance, but what? He 
couldn't find one. There was no closing Pandora's box. Are you with me? But when we trust in Christ, we're given a new nature. Now, some people say that that when I'm given a new nature, He changes the old nature in me into a new nature. But do you know, the Scriptures don't talk about it that way. The Scriptures talk about it like this, that God gives birth to a new person altogether. Now, how many of you in Sunday school were studying John chapter 3 like us? Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he can't inherit the kingdom of God. He didn't say, unless a man changes his ways. Are you with me? He says, unless a man is born again from above or born again from the Spirit, he can't inherit the kingdom. You don't need a, 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 a home makeover. You need to tear the old house down because I'm going to build a new one in its place. So that is what Christ does for us, is he doesn't transform the old one by putting lipstick on a pig, but he gives us an altogether new one, but that creates a problem, because then in me, I have the old nature of the flesh, and the new nature of the spirit, now at war with one another. Are you with me, church family? Do you ever feel that way? Two natures waging war, and In the new nature like Jesus, there's the new nature like Jesus and my old nature like Esau. We all have both of them living inside of us if we've trusted Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other. They're opposed to each other. The spirit, the new man in you, the new woman in you, and the old man of the flesh in you are at war with one another. The spirit of Christ and the spirit of the world are fighting inside of you. That's why Paul can say what he says in Romans chapter 7. Now, a lot of people will say, no, Romans chapter 7 was written before Paul was converted. I don't see that. What I see is Paul saying, inside of me is a war going on. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. I do the thing I hate. Who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. You say, man, Paul is a mess. Paul is us. We have two natures fighting inside of us. And each of us, we struggle to rid ourselves of the old nature and to live in the new nature. Are you with me, church family, or am I the only one that has that struggle? So what we see is Joshua fighting against Esau's descendants. Moses, Aaron, and her on top of the mountain with hands and staff lifted high to God. Now, I want to just look at the names for a second because the names are important. Joshua, can somebody tell me what Joshua means in Hebrew? God, my, or our salvation. God is salvation. Aaron means bringer of light. Isn't that cool? And her has a few different translations, but it can mean freedom 
or whiteness, like purity. Freedom or whiteness, like purity. Okay, so for the Christian, we are likewise in the valley of Rephidim fighting against our flesh, our old man. Okay, and so what does it mean to live in the flesh? Paul gives us an example, a list of here are the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, we'd say, of course. Impurity, that's right. Sensuality, of course they are. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Whoa, whoa. Paul, hitting awfully close to home today, aren't you? Because when you're talking about that sexual immorality or idolatry or sorcery, I don't struggle with that a whole lot. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what it means to walk in the flesh. It, it means to let my flesh be Lord. It, it means to be governed and dictated, not by Jesus, my King of kings, but by my flesh. Not by the Spirit, but, my, by, by, but by my desires. Notice that the majority of the deeds of the flesh, if not all of them, begin here. Sexual immorality always starts here before it gets into a bad relationship. Idolatry, it always starts here before it, it, it reveals it, itself in other things. Almost every one of these things start out in the heart before they ever manifest themselves into our actions. Okay, so what does it mean? What is this process where the old me and the new me are at war with one another and I get to choose who I'm going to fight for. What is that process called? The Bible calls it sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God's will is revealed to each one of us, and He says, this is my will for you, your sanctification. So you say, what's, what's God's will for me in 2023? That you'd be more like Jesus, that you'd be led by His Spirit, that you'd walk in the Spirit and by the Spirit, not according to the flesh, just a little more than you did last year. That's God's will for you. That He would be your Lord more than He was last year. That you would be more surrendered this year than you were last year. Are you with me, church family? And there are two parts of sanctification. It's like a two-sided coin. On one side of it is this idea of mortification, that I need to put to death the deeds of the flesh, Colossians chapter 3. And the other part of it is vivification, which means to to see things brought to life in me. But before anything can be put to death, it's got to be recognized. Before my flesh can be destroyed, it's got to be recognized. And that means every day I wake, there must be personal, daily introspection. Most of the time, we do a lot of uh, searching other people's hearts and not much of our own. Now, we need to introspectively look in, and then when we see what flesh is in us, we need to confess it, we need to repent of it, and we need to ask God by His grace to help us walk according to His Spirit. 
So let's note something, a few things about our war against our flesh. Okay? Number one. Number one. The enemy will attack you at your weakest point. He will attack you at your weakest point. That's exactly what Amalek did, wasn't it? He took off your tail. The stragglers. He attacked you at the weakest point. The devil is uh, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Does a lion in the wilderness go after the strongest and biggest animal? No. He goes after the weakest, after the sick, after the lame. He goes after them. And I just want you to know that Satan will come after you. Your flesh will attack you at your weakest point. And that's why we need to be filled and filled with the Spirit and put on every day the armor of God that we might be able to withstand and stand against the attacks of the evil one. He will attack you at your weakest point. Number two, it will be a lifelong battle. If that's not encouraging, I don't know what is. When's this war going to be over? When you die. Uh, it's a lifelong battle. I want you to look all the way down to verse <clears throat> 14, 15, and 16, mainly 14 and 16. 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then verse 16 ends with, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. When is the war in my flesh going to be over? It will be a lifelong battle. It will be a lifelong battle. Take heart. That's why Paul says that the the one who began the good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We know that it's then that I will put off mortality and put on immortality. The third thing that I want you to see is that we will experience victory. Or maybe will should be can, but I think it's a will. We will experience victory. We will. We will. Here's how. In the passage, we do not defeat our sinful nature through our own strength. But Moses was up on the mountain calling out to the God of the valley. He was calling out to the God who has waged war for them. He is calling out to the God who has been victorious in the past and who was, they're asking Him to be victorious once again. And we fight our flesh the same way. What does Joshua's name mean? God is salvation. Not I am salvation. We learned in uh, Exodus chapter 15 that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Him, not to you. You don't accomplish it. He does. Joshua is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Joshua and Yeshua are the same root, which means God is my salvation. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, when it says that Mary conceived and gave birth to a son, they called his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Who's fighting for our salvation Not just past tense, but presently. Jesus is. He is the one fighting our battles. That's why we experience victory. And that's why the book of Revelation says, we have overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. 
Moses is lifting up the staff of God. Number four, we have personal responsibility. We have personal responsibility. Every day you get to wake up and choose who you will serve. And that's why in the book of Joshua, and I think it's chapter 24, verse 15, somewhere around there, Joshua says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, do you remember? We will serve the Lord. You get to wake up every day and with fresh resolution say, God, I choose by the spirit that you've put in me, this new life that you've put in me, I choose to serve Jesus as Lord, not flesh. We have personal responsibility. There is an army of people in the valley. An army of people in the valley. And tell one of them that the battle that they were fighting wasn't real. They have personal responsibility. In other words, maybe also that the nature that you feed will grow. Whatever you're feeding into in your life will grow. How many of you are good um, green thumbs that if you, you're given a plant, you can cause it to grow because you're feeding it and you're nourishing it. And you see right in front of you this picture of what it means to abide in the vine and bear much fruit. Now, some of you are like me. We're black-thumbed people. That if you want to give me a plant, I'm going to kill it. Give me six weeks and that thing's going to be dead as a doornail. I'm good like that. Because I've forgotten to care for it. I've forgotten to nourish it. I've forgotten to water it. I've forgotten to feed it. Church family, whatever nature you feed is going to grow. So be very careful what you're feeding. And, and on that nature, part of, part of bearing fruit for Christ involves pruning. We were talking about this with Miles last night. Because we think there are some things in his life, like in our life, that need to be pruned. We're talking about how pruning hurts, but it's good for the plant. Pruning hurts. Last, it's only at Jesus's nature that our or Jesus's return that our old nature is destroyed. That's when truly we will not fight against this flesh anymore. One day when Jesus comes, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Why? Because then I will be done warring against this old man. I'll be done warring against this old body. I will be done because there the lion will lay down with the lamb and swords will be beaten into plowshares and there will be a reign of peace. And there I will only have one nature. And it's the new one. Isn't that good news? And as I close, I, I think I could preach another sermon on this, but I've chosen not to. The second battle is the battle for unity. The battle for unity. In chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, they were quarreling. And we, they, we learned from that divided, we quarrel. But in the latter part of chapter 17, 8, 8 through 16, we learn that united we stand. 
And I, I just want to remind us that we are, we are not united over everything. Can I just be honest about that? If I were to ask each one of these people in this room, what does the perfect worship service look like? Do you know how many answers we're going to get? More than we would have people. Husbands and wives would be shocked at what the husband or wife says. It doesn't mean being united over everything, but there is something that far outweighs all of my thoughts, and that thing is a great commission. And that takes me back to what I said earlier. People are dying in the valley. And they're not dying from Amalek. They're dying in their sin. They're dying without a Savior. And the church can be divided and quarrel amongst itself. And Satan is going, yeah, fight. Or we can be united in a mission. And the mission far exceeds our preferences, our hopes, our thoughts, and our opinions. And church family, it's time for us to be united in the Great Commission. Your church staff have prayed kind of for a theme for the beginning of the year, and the theme is outside these walls. We've... we've got this great building and we want this building to be filled up but Jesus never promised if you build it they'll come well, what he said in fact was the opposite go and tell and we're, I want us to be and I know God wants us to be and I know your heart wants our church to be a go and tell people and so let's be praying that direction as we conclude our service and close the let's let's stand together there's some of you this morning you you need sa saving you need salvation there's some of you in here today that your flesh and your spiritual man have been at war and you want to bow the knee to Christ today and just say you're my lord i'm going to live for you and help me by your grace to overcome and so I want to encourage you, if that's you in here and you're waging war, come and kneel. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you want to know about joining the church. Whatever your next step is, now is the opportunity to make it. Let's pray and sing. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart. Speak to my heart today. Yielded and still, seeking thy will. Speak to my heart today. Help us to respond to you in an appropriate manner. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's respond and sing as he leads.